the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As we introduce our guest tonight, I am reminded of many of the weddings, certainly down through the years that I have attended, where generally after a few glowing words that are spoken by a minister in attendance, uh, there's an exchange of vows, and, and much of this seems to focus on largely the notion that they're going to live happily ever after they are completed in each other, uh, that there is uh, just a wonderful thing that happens when two people come and, and pledge their love in marriage. And then, of course, reality sets in. And I, and I say that somewhat with tongue planted in cheek, but yet I think a lot of us have some pretty big distortions about what marriage is, what the roles are between the spouses, and uh, what the expectations ought to be. And boy, especially in this arena of expectations, uh, oftentimes people are in for a very rude, rude, rude awakening. And of course, uh, the evidence of that is the divorce rate in America today. Well, Dr. Chris Thurman has taken the time to dig down into many of these myths concerning marriage and outright says, look, uh, you need to rethink your approach. You need to go into this by being transformed by the truth if you're going to have a hope of a successful marriage relationship. Dr. Thurman, as we mentioned, is an author. He is also a Christian psychologist. He's conducted hundreds of personal growth seminars addressing uh, topics including marriage. And his new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. And Dr. Thurman, good to have you with us on the program. Craig, thank you so much for having me. Well, this is an experience in life where amazingly a lot of married couples go into this thing with eyes wide closed, don't they? Well, unfortunately, we do. We walk down the aisle, and uh, we think we might have a pretty good handle on what we're getting into, but uh, God certainly uses the marital relationship to um, challenge us and to get us to uh, see more clearly what marriage is all about and how he's trying to use it to help us to mature. This this image first out the gate, and it largely seems to be uh, kind of the thing of which uh, fairy tales are made of as opposed to uh, most realistic and long-term marriages, and that is this notion that we're going to live happily ever after, that once we say I do and the ring exchange has taken place, that it, it's only the rare couple or the people that don't work hard enough that end up getting into trouble. But most don't most couples, when they go into this, really think that, that they've got all they need to be successful? I think they do, Craig. I think that's a common assumption that people make. Um, And I do think that we buy into kind of the Hollywood notion that um, it will be happily ever after. And uh, as you said earlier, the reality of marriage being difficult and people being fallen and hurtful at times uh, begins to set in. And then we're not so happy and we begin to question if we're not careful 
having gotten married and we begin to think about other options and uh, think that happiness might be somewhere else out there for us. Hmm. Failed or incomplete expectations. That that seems to kind of be one of the most glaring, if we had to look for uh, maybe an overall overreaching, overarching phrase about where people run into so much trouble, doesn't it? That their expectations for what marriage is about, their expectations about how they're going to relate to their spouse, how their spouse will relate to them is oftentimes one of the big danger areas, isn't it? I think it is. I think we do, uh, even if it's unconsciously, I think we go into marriage with these uh, fairly lofty expectations and that uh, oftentimes are not all that grounded in reality as to what a person can bring to us, what we can bring to them. And so expectations can be a real killer in a marriage and lead people to be bitter and resentful when those expectations are not lived up to. Let, let's reset a few. Early on in the book, and, and when I read your new book, The Lies Couples Believe, I thought, boy, um, <laughs> wouldn't this upset a lot of brides who were busy uh, writing their marriage vows uh, to read the book and, and specifically your chapter on uh, how the spouse will complete me or will meet all of my needs. I, I've been to many weddings where the vows that are exchanged and lovingly you even see the take place during the reception when they're toasting each other or cutting the cake, how that my husband so-and-so, my wife so-and-so, she completes me. And that flowerly language sounds lovey-dovey, but it falls short of a major reality, doesn't it, Doctor? It does. Um, You know, the reality of every human being is that we're finite, and uh, we can't possibly meet the total package of needs that another human being has. But again, we buy into the idea that if we have found the right person, they're going to be capable of completely meeting every need that we have. And uh, what I try to discuss in that chapter is God has a wide variety of healthy, appropriate ways to meet your total package of needs, and that we need to be careful not to drop all of our needs on our spouse's doorstep. And that's pretty uh, pretty unrealistic, too, isn't it? I mean, in terms of the enormous amount of pressure that it puts on an individual. I mean, think certainly from a Christian perspective, uh, we ought to be thinking about God as the one uh, who is most completely and fully capable of meeting all of our needs. To put that kind of pressure on a spouse, to have that level of expectation, I mean, it, it would seem to me you're, you're setting yourself up for disappointment because, let's face it, we all make mistakes. We're all frail. We're all human. We are still all struggling with sin. Well, we are. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think God is bothered that we put that pressure on him because he's omni. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere at once. So he's not intimidated by us turning to him for our needs to be met and and i think he my own understanding is that he wants us to be incredibly careful about not putting that kind of pressure on a spouse or a best friend or anyone else down here on earth 
We're talking about this matter of being transformed by truth in marriage relationships with Dr. Chris Thurman. The new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, and I I find it interesting because we get into early chapters in the book that talk about the misnomer of happily ever after or how that uh, my spouse will complete me or meet all of my needs, and it's very evident that those two misconceptions alone sets the marriage off the rails pretty quickly that the balance of the chapters in the book deal with now the sudden attempt at compensation when things are not going idealistically. And, of course, we find out that there's an awful lot of lies that we believe in that attempt to try and compensate or reason our way through why things aren't going as idealistically as we thought they would or should. We'll talk about that further as our discussion continues. Dr. Chris Thurman, our guest, he is the author of The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation. Craig Roberts along with Dr. Chris Thurman. His new book, The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. Let's talk a bit about um, how this goes off the rails pretty quickly, Doctor. And you dive into this fairly early on in the book. One of the one of the lies that is oft repeated, and I think it's our, sort of our attempt to try and, and, and mentally uh, justify the early cracks that we see in the fuselage, so to speak, in our marriage. And that is this notion that, well, yeah, there's some difficulties here, but my spouse is really the bigger problem. You know, Craig, I think that's very common for people to um, think that way. Uh, It is my spouse who's got more issues. They are the more troubled person. They have the bigger plank in their eye than I do in mine. And that kind of uh, mindset obviously is pretty hurtful to the person that you're married to. Uh, It's pretty... uh, for lack of a better word, it's pretty arrogant for us to think that uh, we are not equally as big of a mess as a human being, and um, it's just sad that we would ever, you know, have that attitude and uh, not have a more humble attitude of, you know, I've got my issues, uh, I am just as much a co-creator of our marital health or sickness, and I need to be uh, humble about that when I'm interacting with my spouse. You know, oftentimes that same distorted perception as to who the problem is also tends to be a means by which we sort of self-justify by saying, well, you know, at the end of the day, I'm making the effort. I'm doing all the hard work. Some spouses might say, well, I work all day long and I bring home the paycheck. Or the other spouse says, yeah, but I'm taking care of the kids and taking care of the house. And so as a result, I'm entitled to my spouse's love. Talk to us about that lie. Craig, the the whole issue of entitlement uh, is especially toxic in marriage, Um, and that's a tough uh, teaching to go into these days because I think, unfortunately, uh, we're almost raised to think that we are entitled. You know, we're entitled to the good life. We're entitled to be treated with respect. And when it comes to marriage, if we're not careful, we think we're entitled to our spouse being loving entitled to them being kind, entitled to them uh, carrying their fair share of the load. So what I'm after in that chapter is I want us to consider shifting away from an entitlement mindset 
to I would like my spouse to uh, love me. I would like my spouse to help me carry the load. More of a humble attitude of I want that from them. I'm not entitled to it, but I desire it. There's also this notion that we oftentimes um, will try to justify some of our own faults or failures by saying, well, you know, I am the way I am because uh, no, you know, no fault of my own. This was the way I was raised. I realize that I have simple or a certain uh, uh, failures or faults. But at the end of the day, my spouse just has to accept me the way I am. And of course, that usually is coupled with and but all of the defects that he or she has, I'm going to work toward changing them. They have to change, not me. Yes, I uh, in that chapter I mentioned the uh, cartoon Popeye because one of his more iconic lines was "I am who I am," and um, what I'm going into there is a lot of people have that attitude, and it's really kind of a smokescreen for I don't want you to push me to change. I don't want you to be on me about anything that I might need to polish off the rough edges of. So do we need acceptance from our spouse? Yes, of course we do. Are they supposed to accept us warts and all? Absolutely. But does that mean that we shouldn't be open to them saying, hey, I don't like this about you. Would you be willing to work on not being that way? I think a marriage that isn't an iron sharpening iron marriage is a no-growth marriage. So I'm very concerned whenever my couples that come to see me kind of wrap themselves in the accept me as I am flag and basically don't want to do any changing while they're married. Mm. Now, toward that end, there's also this notion that um, we would get along better if they would just think like me. This runs into cases, for example, in a marriage where there's a spender and a saver who have married. And we're saying, well, if my if my spouse, who's this major spender, would just become a saver like me, if they just act or think or be like me, that would fix all the problems. You know, I have to admit uh, that's one of mine. Um, I'm not stereotyping military families, but I grew up in a military family. And uh, we were really told, you know, this is the way you clean things. This is the way you organize things. You need to wax it, shine it, windex it, salute it, and um, this is the right way to do it. So when I married my wife, Holly, 35 years ago, I had a pretty uh, stubborn attitude about, you know, you need to be like me. I'm the one who knows how to do it right. And if you're not doing it the way I do it, then you're obviously wrong and you need to adjust. And uh, you can imagine how poorly that goes over with another human being who um, is more than free to be the person God made them to be and to have their own style and to not uh, apologize for that. Let's talk about some other issues here that really go to the core of dealing with bitterness and anger. And uh, it's interesting because this reminds me of the person as they're as they're suggesting that um, a spouse must, for example, the the other offending spouse must be the first one to forgive or has to earn forgiveness from the opposite spouse. That this oftentimes also becomes a place where we suddenly find ourselves not only trying to negotiate the, the topic of forgiveness with our spouse, but I. Would suspect it's like trying to negotiate the terms of forgiveness with God. I think so. And uh, that was one of the tougher chapters of the book to write because um, I think a lot of us do think that forgiveness has to be earned. 
and that the other person has to repent of what they're doing before we will uh, bless them, if you will, with our forgiveness. And so in that chapter, I try to go into the idea that I think is biblically solid, which is forgiveness is commanded. Uh, God says forgive. And so we are not to wait on forgiving somebody. We are not to uh, make them jump through certain hoops before we forgive. Um, and uh, I think that's a hard thing for people to, to do, especially when the other person isn't sorry and they haven't stopped. So I try to distinguish between forgiving somebody and what it takes to reconcile with them, which is another chapter of the book. But and of course, ironically, as we talk about that in perspective of our relationship with God, you know, it, it, certainly He wants there to be reconciliation. God wants to be reconciled unto His creation, wants to walk in fellowship and relationship with His creation. But we also have to recognize that on God's terms, it requires repentance. Yes, and that's uh, a distinction that a lot of people also uh, are a little bit slow to get to. Uh, I try to use the uh, prodigal son story to drive home the issue of forgiveness versus reconciliation. And so in that story, as far as I can tell, the forgiveness had already been granted, if you will, by the father to his son before he returned from the foreign land. So forgiveness was already achieved, but the reconciliation couldn't take place until the son came out of the foreign land. So with my couples, I push them pretty hard on, hey, guys, you're kidding yourself. If you think you guys can reconcile, if neither of you are repentant of what you've been doing wrong that's been hurtful to the other person. The new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. And the book, by the way, is newly published by David C. Cook and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and also through Dr. Thurman's website, Dr. Chris Thurman, Dr. Just Abbreviated DR, DrChrisThurman.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I want to take you to kind of a sur surreal place for a moment. Uh, imagine lying in your hospital bed. Heartbeat is kind of weak. Your breath is faint. Old age is kind of winning the battle. You'll feel that you're, you're close to inevitably passing. You're resigning yourself to the inevitable. Hopefully you're secure and your eternity, so that's not a concern. And yet, as you're preparing to pass on to the next life, we all want some comfort and the feeling of having contact with others. And as you lie there in the hospital bed, you hear this. That um, voice, and I apologize for the poor quality of the recording, is known as the last moment robot. Recently invented by the Japanese, the idea is to place it into the hospital rooms of patients who are dying that lack any family and friends to be there by their side as they pass to comfort them. And the recording there, if you didn't hear it too well, you know, I'm sorry that you're 
passing, so on and so forth. Your friends and your family will remember you. They remember you so well they can't even bother to show up to your hospital. You know, at first you think, well, somebody is thinking about those who are dying to comfort them in their last moments on earth. And then after that thought shoots through your mind for about a split second, you go, wait a minute. Our culture and society these days is being reduced down to bringing the robot. Charlie's dying in there. Bring the robot in. And that's going to give comfort and love and care and attention. The last voice that you hear on this side is going to be a mechanical voice coming from a robot. Are you kidding me with this? Not a joke. Dead serious. Marketing this thing to hospitals in Japan as we speak. The last moment robot. If that thing were by my bedside and no one else, believe me, we'd be going out together because the last grasp of, of energy I had would be to strangle the thing and pull the plug out from the wall. That story demonstrative of trends taking place in Western culture and society today where, frankly, the value of life is just slipping away so rapidly. We're in such a hurry to get people that that are uh, no longer of use to us or, or we're all concerned about quality of life to the degree that if you become inconvenient to the rest of us or too expensive or if we figure economically that it would be more advantageous to take the hundred thousand dollars you need that might add another year or two to your life and you're an octarian for example well better off to take that money and give it to somebody in their 30s and 40s and, and extend their life for more years because after all what apparently counts these days in life and death decisions is no longer based on morals and values but rather on money value more on this sad story and state of affairs. Bobby Schindler joins us, executive director of the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network. And Bobby, thanks for taking time to be with us tonight. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. This story of this last moment robot, I guess just the latest chapter and what continues to be just a disconnectedness, I think, with humanity when it comes to the topics of those that uh, uh, are either at the waning moments of life or have been determined by uh, the health care system not deserving of our care or our attention or least of all our money. Well, I, I couldn't agree more uh, with everything you were saying, uh, Mr. Roberts. Uh, we, we're becoming more and more desensitized to what it means to be uh, to have compassion and love for individuals and, and uh, being convinced and, and justify uh, as I said, more and more every day where uh, there are some circumstances where it's perfectly okay to kill, kill an individual. Where did this slippery slope begin to get kind of the the fast track ride here? I mean, we all know the stories of the likes of Jack Kevorkian. Uh, we know the debates about, uh, you know, death with dignity, the right to die, hemlock society, things of this sort. But there seems to me to be a shift somewhere in here, Bobby, and I can't quite pinpointed in my own mind, but it just seems as if we've moved from what it used to be of giving all the love, the care, and attention that we could to our loved ones and just to other human beings uh, to make sure that they had every opportunity to live life completely into its fullest, had, if they so desired, every resource available to them uh, so that they could have a shot at life. And suddenly, at some point here, we we turn a really dangerous corner. Where, where would you give conjecture to where that happened? Well, it's hard to know exactly, but I think it's been happening for many, many years. It's the, it's the drip, drip. It's the constant drumbeat of this pro-death movement. And 
I think it's working. I, I think the, the media, the secular media, has has a uh, has a real powerful influence on on the way we think about certain issues. The uh, bioethics community, uh, and even certain, uh, I think, a growing number of those in the healthcare profession. Uh, we saw in my sister's case uh, where 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 there were people and and. Uh, the way they came out in, in favor of, of killing, uh, dehydrating and starving my sister, that's something if we do with an animal, even today, it's a felony crime. But but uh, we see it every day working at our, our organization now, trying to help other families. Uh, we see we hear some of the chilling stories of families that are up against these, these doctors and these healthcare uh, ethics committees and um, and just how quick they want to end life and, and just how, how much it's being accepted in, in our society today. It's, it's quite frightening, uh, Mr. Roberts, it really is. You know, we followed with um, great interest and, and at the end great disappointment what transpired in the case of your sister, Terry. Um, and I know that your your ex-brother-in-law played a, a major role in trying to kind of uh, push that, that whole event uh, to reality so much quicker. Based on your experiences, either personally within your family and, and the case of your sister, Terry, uh, Bobby, or on the grander scale of just what you've seen since being involved with the Terry Shivel Life and Hope Network, how much of this is being motivated by just greed? Well, I think the underlying problem certainly is money. Uh, uh, as, you, as you pointed out earlier in, in your comments, uh, if a person becomes too expensive or they're a drain on society and they're not giving anything back, well, what's the point of keeping them alive? Uh, someone like my sister, who not too long ago it would have been thought of as being barbaric to kill her the way they the, the way they killed her, uh, today it's it's ordinary. It's happening every day. Food and water is now determined to be medical treatment uh, through feeding tubes, and it's basically uh, enabled healthcare professionals to deny it to individuals so that they starve and dehydrate to death. Terry was not dying. She was not in a coma. Uh, she had no terminal uh, disease. She was basically a woman with a cognitive, a cognitive disability. But yet, uh, our society today has, has perfectly and, and willingly accepted uh, the way we are killing her and, and others like her every single day in our nation. And I don't think people realize just how much this is happening in, in our country today. And to the degree to which perhaps this is being fast-tracked, I mean, I know there's been a lot of discussion about the Obamacare bill, which is currently under consideration by the United States Supreme Court, uh, the idea of these death panels and things of that sort, which, you know, oh, no, we're, we're, we're really, we're exaggerating when we say that. We're just talking about efficiency of how we invest money in health care. But I guess at the end of the day, uh, whether you talk about death panels, health care rationing, managing money, whatever it is, it still comes down to a fundamental change in the manner in which we treat those that are most fragile amongst us whom for up until recent years bobby as we've been discussing used to get the most care the most love the most attention now it seems to be the first group that we want to strip all that away from uh, there's been a definite shift there's no doubt uh with what's what's happening in our country today and we've turned from looking at all life as having value and dignity to, to looking at life as, as quality. And based on a person's quality of life, now they determine whether or not uh, they will live or die. And, uh, and those decisions are being made every day. And I think going back to your question earlier, when did this shift occur? I, I think we could, we could look at the abortion, uh, abortion issue. Once it became legal to abort your baby, you, you, you devalue one life, uh, the unborn child, and, and really it's, it's a domino effect from there. And, and there's, it should surprise nobody that we're now killing the elderly, those with cognitive disabilities, and so many others based on their quality rather than their value. 
And, and in such a arbitrary fashion, I might add, too, that what you would determine to be a quality of life might be different for somebody else. And, you know, I think in the end, that's a very private, very personal, uh, very intimate decision and discussion that needs to take place amongst friends and family and intimates, not something that ought to be determined by a panel of bean counters or even physicians who are acting as bean counters 3,500 miles away that look at you not as an individual who has connection with family and friend and life and intrinsic value who ultimately is created in God's image, but rather as a line of expense. You're an expenditure. You're somebody for whom perhaps this is not a wise investment based on what we determine to be arbitrarily so. Quality of life. Boy, the talk about a buzzword. If you've just joined us, we're visiting today with Bobby Schindler, Executive Director of the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network. He is the brother of Terry Schiavo. You know, of course, uh, intimately her story. We're talking about these issues of quality of life and, and what seems to be yet once again this, this steady march toward redefining what life means and hastening the passing of those amongst us whom we figure to be either inconvenient, too expensive, or just not being able to contribute to society and therefore arbitrarily on their behalf. We will determine what quality of life means and when it all ought to end. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Terry Schiavo is alive. She's not just barely alive. She's not being kept alive. She is alive as you and I. And as such, we have a moral obligation to protect and defend her from the fate premeditated by the Florida courts. Sadly, of course, I think at a lot of levels, we, um, we as society failed Terry Schiavo in a very significant fashion. And boy, talk about understatements. Bobby Schindler is with us tonight. He is the brother of Terry Schiavo and executive director of the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network. That, that piece of audio going back a number of years now, Bobby, I think was the attorney um, representing uh, your family in this case. Uh, boy, talk about an understatement in terms of just really having failed her, didn't we, as society? Well, it's so, it's so hard to believe uh, to this day uh, that that this was allowed to happen to a, a human being uh, who simply was experienced a cognitive disability. But uh, the reason we're doing what we're doing today uh, with our organization, uh, as you mentioned, the Terry, Sh- Terry Shiva Life and Hope Network, is because the issue did not die with my sister, which has been seven years now. And, and what happened to Terry, as I uh, as I said earlier, is happening every day in our country. And, and what do I mean by that? We're, we're not talking about those that have uh, a terminal illness where they're intermittently dying. Uh, we're talking about people that could quite uh, possibly live a, a normal lifespan uh, that, that are not dying of any, any disease, uh, but are being killed every day by having their food and water taken away. And, uh, uh, and I think people are still very confused on this issue. Uh, I saw it with my sister's case, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm seeing with the subsequent cases that we handle all the confusion and, and uh, misunderstanding about this issue that, that we're talking about here tonight. A lot of that confusion and misunderstanding. How much of that, in your opinion, Bobby, is because the, the terms of engagement, the rules here, are, are being rewritten and rephrased? I mean, I, I think of the number of speeches that Jack Kevorkian used to give, and it was always tried to be painted in terms of this is the compassionate thing to do, this is the caring thing to do. And yet, as I was commenting with my colleague Richard here off the air, mentioned about this robot and said, oh, yeah, you know, 
know, and I don't want to have to go see mom die. Just put the robot over there, and then afterwards we can say to ourselves, well, you know, we uh, she had some comfort. We, we took care of what she needed. We, we made sure that there was somebody there to kind of see her on the way out. It, it, it's almost as if we have suddenly shifted this where it used to be about the patient and their needs and their circumstances and their quality of life and their right to life. And suddenly now the focus has shifted really on doing what we want for ourselves, hasn't it? Well, certainly. Uh, we're losing the narrative, or we've lost the narrative, and, and no longer do doctors uh, take the uh, Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. And, and as we, we've been talking about, it becomes a, subject, a subjective uh, decision. It, it's based on... Uh, value judgments instead of medical assessments, and and, and we're seeing it every day. Uh, as, I, as I keep saying, uh, I think people will be shocked to, to learn, or, or maybe they won't, or maybe they, they're just apathetic to it. Just how many people are being killed by being by dehydration and starvation every day in our nation across hospitals, hospices, and nursing homes, and 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 it's it's, it's quite frightening, quite sad, really. Uh, the apathy, the the attitude, and and the the, uh, I guess, the subjective nature in which we're deciding uh, so many cases, uh, similar to my sister and, and in the elderly and, and so many other people that are really in the crosshairs of this death movement. We're, we're really kind of surrendering our humanity here uh, bit by bit, aren't we? Uh, I think so. And, and I hate to sound so doom and gloom, but but it's it's uh, we have some very powerful influences that are, as I said earlier, just kind of indoctrinating and, and desensitizing uh, most of our culture on an everyday everyday basis. Well, here's one story I've got in front of me. A three-year-old girl by the name of, of Amelia who was denied a kidney transplant that she needed to live, not because the kidney wasn't available, but because according to the hospital panel that makes such decisions, um, she was, quote-unquote, mentally retarded. And because of that, there really wasn't a quality of life there. And so uh, because of uh, the uh, the challenges that she had from an intellectual or cognitive standpoint, she was denied a shot at life. I mean, I don't know how people can make such decisions so flippantly uh, and, and, and live with themselves. Well, it, it's... Um it's, I think a lot of it has to do with this one very powerful question, and it was used a lot in my sister's case, and I hear it all the time. It's who would want to live this way? And um, and again, I think that's kind of controlling uh, much of the decisions that are being made today. Because um, well, when you when you frame a question like that, it's it's a loaded question, first of all, because nobody would choose to live with a disability if given the choice. Uh, but the fact is that there are people. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people that, that are living with disabilities like my sister and, and so many others uh, in, in our country today. And, and when, you, when you pose that question to them, it, it really makes it, uh, I think, somewhat uh, uh, difficult, uh, r- really, for people to see the value and dignity in, in those that, that have these types of um, uh, injuries, uh, these brain injuries. Well, and at the end of the day, it ought to be not about uh, us, it ought to be about them. I mean, when we talk about, you know, while we're doing this to end suffering, who would want to live that way, uh, quality of life, things of this sort. I mean, it, it, there are really kind of buzzwords, all of which come back to what we're trying to say about the circumstance to feel better about it ourselves, because what we're really at the end of the day saying is that we don't care. Well, it really is about us, Mr. Roberts. I mean, you're exactly right. That's no longer about the, individ- the individual that, that needs our love and attention and our compassion, those that are completely dependent upon us. And, and that's, again, a point. And, and, and I speak in general terms. This obviously doesn't apply to all of us. I mean, there's some wonderful and loving people and doctors and nurses out there uh, that, that feel the same way we do. But I think there's a growing number 
that are accepting this quality of life uh, attitude, and 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 they do look at people as numbers, and, and they don't they don't see the value and dignity, and, and and they justify and rationalize different ways to kill these people all in the, all in the name of you know quote unquote mercy. And Bobby, I think it's important to have you underscore for listeners that maybe uh, didn't catch it the first time or have tuned in a bit late that th- this dialogue has made a subtle shift here. We're not necessarily talking about extreme heroics in order to try and and maintain somebody's life. We're down to cases now where, as part of a cost-saving agenda, uh, folks are being encouraged to literally pull feeding tubes uh, from from elderly patients, you know, deprive them of of, of substance, uh, and then let them pass peacefully. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> to one degree, whether you're getting the food off of a plate at the table or a feeding tube, you know, the end result is the same thing. Uh, and, and then, to the cruelty of the same thing, whether you're taking away food from a starving person or simply denying them substance by cutting off the feeding tube, you know, isn't it ultimately still murder? Well, it's hard to not to look at it as that. Uh, I mean, again, you look at the case of my sister, uh, who, who only really needed a wheelchair, and she could have been taken anywhere. Uh, I don't think people realize that. And, and we're talking. And you're right. We're not talking about any heroic measures uh, keeping these individuals alive. Uh, but, but yet, uh, I mean, do people actually think and and understand what we're doing to those with these types of disabilities? We're starving and dehydrating them to death. Uh, sometimes it, it takes more. Uh, than, than two weeks, as it was in the case of my sister. But, but uh, we're actually depriving them of the most, our, most, our most basic need. And, and it just seems to me that uh, more and more of our country today just doesn't seem to have a problem with that. And, and that's what really, uh, as I keep saying, is, is, is really frightening for us uh, as we see as an organization. Uh, as we move forward here. Let me ask you this question, Bobby. For those of us who do get it, who understand that what we're really seeing here is is the slow demise of what had been human dignity and care for life and and concern for uh, the infirm and elderly and so forth. You know, those to whom we used to give the most, now we wish to offer them the absolute least we can. Uh, but for those who understand it and get what it is that we're talking about today, how can we become better engaged? Uh, how can working with organizations uh, like the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network uh, help us? get the message out and and turn the the, the direction of all this stem the tide so to speak well it's it, it, it's a good question it's, it's always one hard for me to uh to answer uh i mean certainly if, if you go to our website it's uh, lifeandhope.com you can see and, and understand and educate your, yourself on this issue because i think there really is a lack of understanding a lack of education when it comes uh to this issue there's there's much confusion uh, about what we're talking about here, people don't realize that that people like my sister that are really in only need of food and water uh, are, are being killed like this every day, and people need to get involved, uh, whatever that might be, uh, by getting involved. But, but people need to, to really make an effort on, on getting involved. You know, you have an, a gentleman uh, right there in your backyard, Wesley Smith, has been warning us, a uh, bioethicist uh, uh, who has been warning us about what was happening what was going to be happening in our country many, many years ago, and, and much of what he was warning us about is coming true, and, and it's really because of the apathy. I think a, a large part is because of the apathy, and people just not getting involved. So I, I think that's very important. People need want, if people get involved and they show uh, that they care and there's an interest in this and start pushing back, uh, and, and perhaps some of the laws would begin to change, I, I think we would see a, a shift or uh, perhaps a, a way we can start protecting these people instead of uh, 
uh, continue to rationalize killing them. You're right. We, we, we have to stop the rationalization. We have to stop making this simply a, an issue of dollars and cents. Um, we have to get educated. I'm so glad that you mentioned uh, Wes Smith. He's a dear friend and been as a, a frequent guest on this program and has done a fantastic job. And, and we appreciate not only his efforts, but efforts of people like yourself, Bobby. I know that through a lot of own personal pain in your family uh, in, in jumping on uh, to, to kind of lead the charge, so to speak, of awareness on this topic. And we sure appreciate you taking some time to be with us today. Well, thank you. And, and these aren't easy issues. I mean, these are difficult, but, but uh, what else? Should, what, what choice do we have but to, to look out and protect our most vulnerable? And, and unfortunately, I, I think we're losing that. And, and, uh, and through prayer and God's grace, uh, I hope we can, we, can, we can do better. Amen. And, you know, we're here in an election year, which ought to sensitize us at a lot of levels to, to having our voice heard. And, 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 you know, as Bobby Schindler points out there, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're kind of allowing our humanity uh, to slip through our fingers here, and we're justifying all of this. And you know, mankind is certainly not a stranger to justification uh, of of uh, immoral and ungodly actions. But now it's getting to be amped up to the nth degree, uh, and it's terrible. I mean, you know, when I first saw this story about the uh, uh, the last moment robot, I thought, well, there's somebody's attempt to want to make sure that an individual who's uh, you know, uh, passing has some kind of sense of comfort. And then I thought, wait a minute, do you really think that a person's going to comfort by an automatron voice and, and this mechanical arm reaching out and stroking, stroking you? Uh, that's not really doing something of care and concern for the dying. That's really just appeasing our own uh, inadequacy, perhaps. And, you know, we ought to look at that instead and say, you know what, we need to make sure that no one ever has to pass away alone and that we as a, a particularly as Christians but as a society and a culture uh, need to do a far far better job that instead of of cutting off from individuals the kind of love and care and attention that they ought to receive at their final moments uh, we ought to be saying instead what can we do to give them everything possible we don't do that anymore and we all justify this because it's well, about quality of life when it's really about not wanting to be inconvenienced and greed and just at certain levels downright evil you know a guy like Jack Kevorkian Dr. Death aptly named so sad alright we're going to take a time out here when we turn a corner Claudia Humphrey's going to join us uh, we've got another sobering issue to talk about tonight, and I, I apologize for uh, kind of the, the weightiness of such matters, uh, but it is important that we as believers are aware of the battle that is on the front lines and to be engaged in the spiritual warfare, as Bobby just mentioned a moment ago, um, that we have to prayerfully in dealing with these issues, because uh, this, is, uh, this is a critical stand that we have to take as believers Boy, if there was ever a sense of being in the end times, uh, we are there. Our thanks again to Bobby Schindler, Executive Director of the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network, brother of Terry Schiavo. More information on the web at lifeandhope.com. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flint. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.